Amen. This morning we will return to our series in Exodus, free at last, to Exodus chapter 21. We'll begin reading at verse 18. Listen to the word of the Lord. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall, he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. If the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the, get, let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray now as we all sit under the authority of your word, and as you teach us this morning, would you do that work in us through the power of your spirit by your word? Would you shape us, mold us, and fashion us, conform us to the image of your Son? In our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, in speaking to uh, the choice of Barabbas over Jesus at the time of the crucifixion, crucifixion. One writer quoting uh, David Garland notes that the violence of renegades like Barabbas continued in the decades that followed until it finally erupted into a full-scale war with Rome. Rome invaded Palestine and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and most of the people who lived there. The leaders had been afraid of Jesus because supposedly he was a threat to the temple, and they released Barabbas. The violent ways of men like him eventually rained terror on the land and led to the destruction of the very temple that they were trying to protect. It's an interesting irony that human beings often choose violence, often choose violence can be clearly seen, of course, in the people's choice of Barabbas over Jesus. Yet this impulse toward violence didn't start there. It started with Cain killing his brother Abel out of envy of God's favor toward Abel's sacrifice and his disapproval of his. And it continued with his descendant Lamech his vengeful, vengeful boast of killing a man for wounding him. And it culminated 
in the assessment of humanity before the flood in Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And what do we find then after the flood? Well, we find a continued commitment to violence as a way of life for many within the human community. Even God's judgment doesn't eradicate the impulse in our sin toward it, demonstrating the the depth, in fact, of our sinful corruption and our need for healing. We don't have to look around long in our own generation to see the impulse toward violence that continues to manifest itself in our world from domestic abuse to shootings to assaults to murders to wars. Violence continues to plague our world. So the question for us as Christians is how do we as God's people engage our world in this reality? How do we respond to violence in our midst as well as violence in the world around us? I want to suggest to you this morning that that God in these laws was training His people of old what it would look like for them to manifest in their relationships the way to handle the reality of sinful violence in their own midst. He was training them, brothers and sisters, to see the cost to see its impact on victims, and to see the cure for those trapped under its oppressive power. In these laws, we see not only God's concern for one aspect of violence, murder, but His concern for all aspects of violence in this world. In these laws, we will see in seed form what is meant to come to full flowering in the New Testament church called by Paul and Titus to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That salvation is meant to change us and shape us and mold us as the Christian community into a people who now lay down that malice and envy and anger, and hatred, and violence, and instead move toward what creates peace. Amen, people of God. So then what general principles do these laws teach us as the church about dealing with violence? Well, first of all, they teach us the cost of violence, the cost of violence. As each of these uh, potential scenarios show, violence has a cost. The first scenario envisions an argument where one of the parties in the argument resorts to physical violence toward the other. With either his fist or some object, he assaults the other person. 
And depending on the impact of the violence, the person will have to pay a cost for the harm done to the other person. In the second scenario, a slave is severely beaten. This is clearly indicated in the implied possibility of the slave's death. Again, depending on the outcome of this violence, the perpetrator will have to pay a cost for the harm that is done to the other person. And in the third circumstance, a, a bystander not involved in the violence is accidentally struck. In this case, the bystander happens to be a pregnant woman. Depending on the harm done to the woman or her child, the perpetrator will have to pay a cost for the harm done to the other person. By the way, God shows a deep concern in this last scenario for children in their mother's womb, guarding that life with the same vigilance that He does life outside the womb. So God is to be praised for being the God who is concerned for all of human life, protecting it against unjust violence. But what we see in these scenarios, generally speaking, is that there is a real cost to violence. There is, of course, a human cost represented in each of these scenarios, which ranges from a person being unable to work for a few days due to their injuries to a person dying from their injuries. This is to say nothing, of course, to the psychological and the emotional and even the spiritual impact on the victim. There's also, of course, a punishment attached to each of these scenarios that also functions as a cost for the violence, with the punishment ranging from compensation for a person's lost labor due to recovering from the violence to the possibility of capital punishment in the case of another person's death. Added to all of this, of course, is the cost to the community broken relationships between neighbors and families, economic costs to families, as well as the potential for revenge attacks, creating more violence in the community. This is why the responsibility for judges to judge justly would be important to help communities deal with things justly and in a way that created the potential for healing. Now, I save one final cost for last, and that is, that is the spiritual cost. In acting violently, we forget a very important truth about our God, which the psalmist reminds us of in Psalm 11, in verse 5. It says this, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God, brothers and sisters, does not delight in violence nor the one who loves it. And we can be assured that God is not pleased when we turn to violence as the answer for our problems. And I'm not speaking here about corrective discipline in the lives of our children or matters of self-defense individually or nationally, but to that impulse in all of us that responds like Lamech in Genesis 4. Such violence comes at the spiritual cost of God's displeasure and discipline in the lives of those who belong to Him and covenant, my point is that violence has a cost. And as believers, recognizing that cost, we should do everything in our power to discourage it both in the church and outside of it. We should be those known for our peacemaking and not known for our anger. Amen, people of God. And so the call here is really to hold each other accountable when we act violently. We, we may want to believe 
that as Christians, we are past such behavior. Yet the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures speak to the presence of anger and quarreling and fighting even within the household of God. Being Christians, in other words, doesn't free us from the presence of sin, but it does give us the power to do battle with that sin, to put it to death. And so when our sin leads us to speak and think and act violently, should be addressed through holding each other accountable for it. Jesus even warned Peter, who tried to use violence for what he thought was a just end, the protection of his Lord and Master, but was rebuffed by the Lord who instructed him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. We must remind each other of the cost of violence and where appropriate hold each other accountable through discipline. From violence in the home to violence in the streets, Christians are to personally refrain from turning to violence as a means to deal with conflict. We are even to refrain from it to accomplish what we believe is a just end. While this doesn't prevent us from defending ourselves or others against violence, it does caution us against using violent force to solve our problems or to move what we think is a just cause forward. Amen, people of God. There is a, there's a cost for violence that we learn in these laws. There's also a concern for victims, a concern for victims. These rules, in addition to showing us that violence has a cost, also show us God's concern for the victims of violence. In each of these cases, including the one um, in speaking about violence done to a slave, uh, which we will cover in a few minutes, the, the victim receives some form of compensation for the violence done to them. Even in the case of the slave where no compensation is directly paid to him, should he survive the violence, he, he or she survive the violence and be able to continue to work, he is compensated in the fact that he does not owe his debt master the money lost to him through the slave's inability to work for those days he is recovering. In this sense, his debt is not increased through his debt master's sinful violence toward him. What is more, in the case of the debt slave is that should the violence result in his tragic death, the debt master will be held accountable. Some commentators believe, and I agree, that the punishment here would be equal to, to the taking of any human life through intentionally violent means. That is, the punishment would be capital punishment. In this way, God would be showing that the lives of slaves were not somehow inherently less precious in the sight in his sight than others, and that the debt master does not, in fact, own the human being under their employ, but are accountable to God for their lives. The true rendering of the slave is his property is actually the slave is his money. That is, the, slave, the slave's labor is his until he pays off his debt, not the slave himself. So, in each of these scenarios, a payment of sort is made to the person who has been the victim of violence. Now, the point of the compensation isn't to say that money heals all wounds. How can money compensate, for instance, for a mother who loses her child through someone else's violence? How can you pay a mother or a father 
for lost birthdays, lost occasions of joy and laughter, lost graduations, weddings, and the like. This man who shot this 14-year-old boy in South Carolina because he thought he had stolen water bottles out of his store has robbed a family of all of that. How can you pay a spouse who loses her husband or wife to such violence? You can't. The point of the compensation isn't to cover all that violence has taken away. Rather, it is a physical way for God to say to those victims through these perpetrators that He knows that something has been taken away from them, that He knows that they have been robbed of something precious, whether their physical and economic well-being or something much more precious as in the loss of a loved one. And we know God all too well, don't we, from the Scriptures. For the God who encodes in His law this act of recognition of the loss carried by those who are treated violently is the God who says to those very people through the coming of the Messiah that He is here to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. These laws then not only show us the cost of violence, they show us the concern of our God for those who are the victims of it. And here is the call. If God cares about the victims of violence, then so should His church. People who have been treated violently should know that the church is a safe haven for the abused, for the battered, for the broken. And we demonstrate this, brothers and sisters, by weeping with those who weep over violence done to them, by counseling those who have been so treated, by praying for and working for justice where we are able for those who have been so treated, providing safety for those who have been so treated, and by comforting those who have been so treated with the comfort we ourselves have received from God in our troubles. Amen. We do it in the same way the jailer did for Paul and Silas after he had received salvation. We read this in Acts And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized once, he and his family. And then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We do it. We do it in the same way the Samaritan did for the man left by the side of the road. He went to him, Luke 10, bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is the kind of care that we're meant to show to those who have been treated violently in our world. There's a cost for violence. There is God's concern for the victims of it. Finally, brothers and sisters, there is a cure for us all. There's a cure for us all. I wanted to unpack this this last scenario last, and so I'll read it to you again. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. 
the scenario itself carries forward the scenario mentioned in verses 20 and 21 where a slave has been beaten severely by his master. You may immediately recognize the irony here because in the verses related to the scenario of accidentally striking a pregnant woman, we're introduced to what is referred to as uh, the lex talionis, the law of retribution. And this principle, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, this principle far from promoting violence was actually a way of checking unrestrained violence. Indeed, it was a way of dealing with that Lamech spirit in each of us where in response to a lesser act of injury, we want to reflect a more severe injury on others. It was to keep people, for instance, from exacting a life in payment for a tooth. Thus, it was to be used by judges to ensure that the punishment, in fact, fit the crime. But here's the irony in this last scenario. The slave who loses a tooth, the slave who loses a tooth in the midst of a violent beating or whose eye is lost in the midst of a violent beating is not to receive an equal compensation for his loss. Rather, he or she is to receive the ultimate payment, which is their freedom. God's answer, therefore, to his or her suffering is not that they should be trapped under the hands of an oppressive overseer, but that they are to be released from the very presence of such oppressive violence. It's not God's will, in other words, brothers and sisters, that people should be made to bear up under oppressive violence, that they should have to just take it. God's will is that people be set free from such violence, that they be removed from places where their lives are in such danger. Don't misunderstand the text here. The point isn't to free them only if their tooth gets knocked out or their eye uh, gets injured. The point for the judges was to examine the nature of the circumstances, and in cases where oppressive violence was on display, the person was to be rescued from such oppression. This freedom, of course, rested in God's own act on behalf of His people, for they were violently mistreated by their slave drivers in Egypt. And God's answer was not that they should remain there, but that they should be set free from the midst of that violence. And so He, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, rescued them. It was this act that formed the basis for God setting us free from our most violent enemies, sin and death. Indeed, brothers and sisters, Jesus exhausted that violence of all of its power when He allowed Himself to be nailed to the cross, absorbing in His own body the cost of all of our sinful violence. Amen, people of God. That's why we're free today from the wrath of God against us. And we are only free because of it. How then can a people free from violence live in any other way than to work to free others from it? How can we who have been rescued be anything less than rescuers? Amen, people of God. The call here is to not be okay, nor ask others to be okay with living under violent circumstances. I grew up in a city 
And I grew up in a neighborhood where gun violence was a normal part of life. It wasn't okay. And it's not okay for people to live under such circumstances. I grew up in and lived in an environment where domestic violence was also common. It wasn't okay. It's not okay for people to live under such circumstances. I grew up in a neighborhood of gang and drug violence. I got my eye busted by a gang member over a conflict about a kickball game. I'll tell you that story one day. But it's not okay for children or adults to live under such circumstances. It's not okay for people to be displaced by war, ethnic violence, religious persecution, and the like. Where God's church exists, we proclaim a kingdom that is free from this kind of violence, a community where violence of all kinds has come to an end. And as we live this way in relationship with each other and proclaim this kingdom through our words and our deeds among our neighbors in whatever country we're in, we give the world a picture of a world where violence has come to an end. I don't know all the answers to how to engage all the types of violence I just mentioned as well as those I did not. But I am committed as a Christian to learning what it looks like in my own life in the places where God has given me a voice to encourage others to do the same. And may God give all of us hearts to work for the freedom of others who are trapped under violent circumstances. Amen, people of God. In a world filled with violence, Christians are called to a different way of living. These laws, these rules that we see here in Exodus 21, more than just regulating Israel's internal conflicts, were meant to shape them into a people who could be a light to the nations around them in terms of how to deal with violence in their midst. Because we are not exempt from sin, the sin that can lead us toward violence, our Lord reminds us in His Word that the salvation He brings gives us the power to engage it with the hope of bringing peace where violence reigns. As Christians, we walk in that hope by reminding each other of the cost of violence, by encouraging each other toward God's concern for the victims of violence, and for proclaiming the cure to violence by seeking to set people free from its grasp. May the Spirit empower us for His glory to be that kind of people. Amen, New City. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize that we live in a world we live in a world, Lord, where all kinds of violent interactions between human beings exist. In fact, Lord, we know and have seen some of us, even in our own lives, maybe in our own families, the reality of how violence can impact individuals, impact families, impact communities. And you, by your salvation, have set us free from being a people who give ourselves to malice and envy, to hatred, to fighting and quarreling, to violence. You've set us free by your death and resurrection from the dead. 
Indeed, Lord, you took on the violence of men, absorbed the violence of our sin, that we might be set free, that we might be delivered. So I pray, help us as a people who have been delivered, who have been rescued, who have been set free in our interactions with each other, Lord, to live as people who recognize not only the cost of violence, but recognize your concern for those trapped under it and your commitment to set people free. Indeed, the day is coming, Lord, where war will cease across the earth. So we give you praise for that day. And as we look toward it, we pray, help us to be a community that live in the here and now in light of what we know is coming. So help us to work to see people set free, to see our neighbors set free from violence of all kinds. We pray in Jesus' name.